So this past week, we read the final part of Principles by Ray Dalio. It was the second half of the work principles. Um, and so today we're going to be kind of think, talking about you know specific points that we took away, uh, but then the general feel of the book, specifically any critiques or uh, the big takeaways. So to start off, the first point I think we can bring up is uh, Dalio talks a lot about treating an organization like a machine, uh, not only that it has its people and its culture, but um, more that there are inputs and there are outcomes, and you should constantly be assessing and comparing those two things to see, you know, is the machine working or is it not? So one interesting application I thought for this was, how would you apply this if you were going to assess yourself as a person? Um, and and kind of thinking, you know, whenever you make a mistake, whenever you feel some kind of pain or some kind of trouble, uh, I, I find it, it's not commonly told to me, or I haven't really realized, you know, you don't really dig really deeply at the problem itself. Yeah, no, I think you're hitting on the root cause. Um, and it's very important to look for the root cause of things. I think oftentimes we get bogged down by um, the, the, the symptoms of problems um, when we should be looking for the root, uh, root cause. For, for, for me, I think one of the best tactics he um, talked about was like this idea of like asking why. Um, you asked like, I think, I think he was talking about like five whys, but um, just ask why until you get to the reason why you're um, getting all these problems. Look for the patterns um, and really d dig deeper. Um, and I, I think, you know, looking at yourself as a machine that's constantly evolving rather than just like an output of r r random outputs that are totally independent is something that makes um, managing your sort of everyday lives and your actions and their results um, a lot easier. I agree. I think it's something hard to do, but looking at yourself like a machine is really important because um, just like when you update a software or a machine, it's not you're not going to make that mistake again. And when you feel pain after making a mistake or something unfortunate happened, if you look at yourself like a machine and really try to identify that root cause, you won't experience that pain again. So although it's hard, it's something you should really consider with reflection after you experience pain. Another key point I think he brings up is, is on page 453. He says, when making rules, explain the principles behind them. Now, this is obviously a, a very common uh, thought, which is that don't give people rules, but uh, or give people rules, but rather make sure you back them up in a mission. And so I think uh, a good example is, you know, little kids. They are given a bunch of rules uh, by society and not explain why these things are happening, right? It's That's why they're always asking why oh, you can't do this, and they ask the parents why, it's like, okay, well, just, you have to believe me, I'm telling you to do this. Um, and so in that case, you know, maybe you don't explain it, but more generally, I, I think it is really important uh, to explain the thought process beside, behind making those rules. I agree with what you said, and to add on the point with, like, little children, like, you often hear the response, because I said so, like, with parents saying that, and I think, obviously, we're growing up now, but you can kind of see the importance it kind of has to do with this point about reasoning is a lot more important because let's say you might not be on board with one idea, but someone's idea ended up winning out. You're much more likely to want to push for the same goal and follow their idea if you understand the reasoning rather than just being told to do something. Yeah, well, I think re understanding the reasoning um, gives people a lot more autonomy. And that's another thing that he, um, that Dalio mentions. Um, and this is a point that ours brought up um, earlier when, when talking about this book, um, giving uh, people autonomy allows you to really step back in terms of 
uh, holding the reins on uh, management um, and it allows them to be a lot more independent and I think yeah, really understanding the why allows you to get the best out of people. Um, but uh, one of the points I wanted to make, um, and I think this is an addition onto a point that we've made a lot um, when it comes to like transparency and radical transparency and Dalio's philosophy on that. Um, for me, the, the addition that he made in this chapter is like, or that I noticed in this chapter is like, radical transparency almost gives you like a shield. Um, and, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, there's this like common, I think, phenomenon or this pattern in our society where um, saying things out loud almost makes it um, them not as bad as covering them up. And, um, and, 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 obvi and obviously in the work environment, obviously it's, they're not as, as bad, but like saying a, um, being very straight, uh, being very confident and um, open about a, 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 a philosophy or a view that is um, very controversial is something that's, um, is something that's like, it, it's accepted more than like hinting at that you agree with something. Uh, that with a controversial with a controversial view, uh, just to sort of reiterate that being very open about your views, even if they're controversial, is sometimes less controversial than just hiding it and giving hints at that. I think the best example of this is like um, you'll see political commentators uh, nowadays who are very open about their um, views that are um, some people believe to be um, whether it's racist, whether it's um, homophobic, whether whatever it may be. Um, being very open about it almost gives them a shield um, to, to the criticism because it's, it's accepted by everyone. And I think when other people hint at it without being that um, upfront about it, um, it, it doesn't, they, they're vulnerable to attacks. Well, I agree with what you're saying, Rowan, and how it can like give you a shield because you're very upfront and open. I do think you have to watch what you say, and you can't just say what's ever on your mind, especially in today's culture with, you know, like people are canceling each other, for things they said for one-time things, I think it may be a shield, but you still have to be really conscious of what you're saying and how people will take it because what you say is on the record. Yeah, I kind of disagree with that opinion that it is less controversial to publicly say what you're thinking because, I mean, there's a reason people hide it, right? Because they know it's controversial. And, and when you say something that's controversial, uh, people are going to react very dramatically. And when, you know, sometimes you can make a sly uh, comment or hint at it, it's not as severe. So I, I, maybe I'm failing to misunderstand your point. I think what you may be trying to say is that by being open, you have nothing to hide, which is in many ways a good thing when it comes to presenting your opinions. Yeah, maybe this just comes to um, the way that uh, like people understand things or maybe even the way that our media presents things um, in today's day and age. I think there's something very interesting about um, th this, this, this difference between hiding what you believe and being very open about it. Because if, you, if you're very open about what you believe, there's not as much of a story there, right? There's not as much of a, oh, this person could be a racist, right? If you're very open about your beliefs and you actually make attempts to justify them, but being very clear about your beliefs that might be commonly um, perceived as being racist or being homophobic, um, I think you're less perceptible to attacks, actually, than people who aren't as, but they hinted it. Because I, I think it shows lack of confidence in your belief um, when, you, when you're just hinting at something. So if you're not confident in a controversial belief, that does make it less controversial, no? Right? Like, uh, no, 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 no. I, I think it, it, sh it shows less confidence, so that makes you um, more susceptible to attacks from other people because you're less confident in it. 
um, if you're showing a lot of confidence in your beliefs, makes you less uh, less susceptible to it. Okay, so I, I don't think Can I'm I just fully... just in a circle? Yeah, I, I don't know if we're fully describing what you mean. And so I think we can kind of agree to disagree there. Uh, I kind of want to go back to what you said about you know giving groups autonomy. This was my big takeaway that I had kind of explained to Rowan, uh, which is that, look, one thing you really want to avoid in an organization is a bureaucracy where everybody has to go to this strong you know central government, uh, which is what it'd be in the U.S., but kind of this strong uh, core at the top of the hierarchy in the organization that basically has a lot of power and more control than it should. And, and the way to avoid this is to give the smaller groups autonomy. And he says this um, in, in, on page 505. He says, make departments as self-sufficient as possible so that they have control over the resources they need to achieve their goals. And so what this means is basically if you give a group everything they need to do to do what they need to do and to achieve the goal that you've given them, uh, and if they're competent enough, they don't need to directly report to that, you know, the very higher up each time. And so, you know, bureaucracies are known for making very high quality decisions because you have a ton of different perspectives. Uh, but oftentimes what they fail to do is evolve. And you see this in a lot of big companies uh, where, where because, you know, so many or a lot of old companies that are dead, right? Because because they were so bureaucratic, they weren't able to evolve. You, you see big uh, tech tech giants um, in the dot com that have just failed. And a lot of that stems from the inability to make change rapidly because of this bureaucracy. I agree with what you're saying about autonomy and like fractions of the company. And I think it has to do with Ray Dalio's point, which he makes a big point about responsibility. And by giving people who are lower in the company this responsibility, they feel that it's their responsibility and they feel accountable for their actions and they're more likely to respond possibly by being given this responsibility because they feel like it's their mission it's their work and they want to feel proud of it for it to benefit themselves 100 percent. if you give people a responsibility and really give it to them they start to take accountability uh for the results of it and so you know that means that when it's good they, they are held accountable for that uh, i guess the weird way to phrase it i guess the better way to phrase it is if they do something bad they're held accountable um and they kind of have that the punishment that may come from within, which is, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed in how I did and I'm not really happy with the work we've done here. So that can really drive motivation uh, within an organization. Another idea I wanted to bring up um, really quickly was how does radical open-mindedness, what are its implications on empathy? And so my instinctive thought is that, look, in a, in a organization where people are calling each other out every time they see something wrong obviously for the cause of, uh, of improving the organization and the whole but it does get a little bit um hostile and it's not the most productive or i shouldn't say productive but the most comfortable place to be in there's a lot of discomfort with constantly being called out but if you take radical open-mindedness which is you know knowing primarily radical open-mindedness is knowing that you may not know and then that that applies to empathy if you kind of understand that you may not know someone's pain, uh, that's a good example of empathy, but that they do have pain uh, in any aspect, that may actually enable a lot of empathy uh, amongst people. And so I think this could have really positive effects on an organization. I think it's this, um, you're hitting on a really good point, which is that the power of listening. And I think, you know, a lot of times that um, when people aren't open-minded, they aren't willing to listen. And um, because of that, they limit themselves to a certain narrow perspective that they have to hold um, because they're unwilling to listen to other people. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, 
obviously being able to get differences in opinions and being able to hold this idea of meritocracy where there is a lot of variety um, is when you're going to be the most productive. So being able to listen is something, yeah, obviously that's super important, has major implications on empathy. I agree with the point about radical open-mindedness, and I think it has to do with um, the reasoning and his emphasis on reasoning. So it's not, why do you not get this project completed? Or it's, is it because you're lazy or because you had a really bad situation, something came up that was really out of the ordinary? So by being radically open-minded, you can consider the reasoning and from there decide if that person should be fired or if it's just a one-time mistake that's an unlikely circumstance. Yeah, and, and specifically, radical open-mindedness may apply to the individual data point of someone messing up on a task, for example. But when you aggregate data over, you know, let's say a decade of someone continually failing to do something, then you know, the, you're still open-minded, but look, the data is really suggesting that maybe they need to exit the organization and just kind of using that example that you've mentioned. I really like the... Um the frog uh, in the boiling water syndrome that he talks about, um, which is sort of this idea that um, if you, it's this example, if you put a frog in, a, in boiling water um, just straight in, it's going to jump right out. Um, but if you put a frog in water and then boil the water slowly, um, it'll just stay in there and die. And I think this really, um, really represents this idea of um, cognitive dissonance and uh, this the, the, how things really happen gradually in our life. Uh, the, the best example that I can think of as a practical application of this idea um, is oftentimes, you know, um, I would say that um, I'm an aspiring entrepreneur or problem solver. And oftentimes when you have an idea um, and you're working on executing it, usually the first thing that when you, when you have the idea, you're super, super passionate about it. Um, and you love it. You love the idea. I've, I've had this experience before where, I, you know, you come up with an idea and you're super excited. This is going to be um, a huge thing. And then you fail a bunch and, you know, you get a lot of negative feedback. Um, and then your, your outlook on the idea is totally different. And you sort of, you know, give up on the idea. And it's this sort of gradual effect where you become increasingly less and less excited about it. Um, and for me, one of the biggest things that uh, I've, I've noticed and realized is like, what's the changing point? Oftentimes, you know, um, this is just because you're failing, not because there's a fatal flaw to this idea. It's just because you're getting people who aren't as enthusiastic as you um, who are giving you feedback. Um, and for me, it's like, what's the change? What's changed since I had that initial idea that is now making me my outlook on this idea um, less positive or less energetic? And usually, it's just um, you, like f you have to be able to realize that like this gradual effect of like being beaten down on a little bit um, is something that is like actually not the uh, not the like right portrayal of reality. And that that like that passion and that fire is like it, it still should be there. Maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but I think the point is that um, oftentimes this gradual, um, this gradual change and evolution of things can really impair your judgment um, and allow, force you to accept things that you normally would never accept. And this is where the higher level thinking and kind of taking a step back and looking in the grand scheme of things. Um, I think a common example is, let's say height, for example, or weight. If you gain a pound a day or, you know, if you gain an inch a day, not a day, I should say a month, for example, uh, and you, you know, if you look back, you've grown so much, but to you, you really haven't. Yeah, exactly. And so it's really important, especially in organizations, to take a look back and like, where are we heading? 
and that's really the job of uh, higher ups, I would say, if you were to consider an organization and related to a hierarchy of people, uh, it, it is a job of uh, you know the, the the managers to oversee where we are in, in comparison to where we should be and where we started. And to add to what Rowan's saying, I think part of the reason when you are so excited by idea and over time you get less excited is because you start to consider more and more the difficulties that come with execution. And I think to add on to what Aris was saying, that's why in Ray Dalio emphasizes it's important to keep your eyes on the goal because sometimes you're very focused on these details that you can't seem to get right, but it's more important to focus on the main goal towards that direction. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think um, another example, because I think there are definitely some flaws in the um, entrepreneur example that I think Arco hit on pretty well, um, but uh, is just, you know, if if you look at the way things happen um, in, in, I think, the stock market, I think the stock market is just like a great way to just like understand human psychology and the way that we accept things um, and the way that things happen, right? Change almost always is um, something that happens very, very like slowly, you know, um, it's just sort of like you're, you're in this upward trajectory, usually in the stock market, but um, there's all these, you know, little blips and these little, little gains that you have. It's almost never these huge gains. And usually if it is these huge gains, there's always like a pullback. Um, but it's everything happens by these little jumps that everyone takes up. You, everyone accepts something a little bit higher, a little bit higher. Um, one of the coolest one of the coolest ideas for me that I've always wondered about and thought about was like, if you're counting from zero to a thousand, obviously like zero of anything isn't very much. One of anything, well, one of most things isn't very much either. Um, but a thousand of something is quite a few. And what's that tipping point where it actually becomes really big? Because, you know, you'll never actually feel like, you know, you're, you're, you're big yet or you've drastically changed. But at some point, there is going to be a tipping point where you're big. What is that point? That that's always been interesting to me. The, the tipping point is is always very interesting. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a, wrote a book on it, but um, kind of the idea where when does it become not a continuation of your current uh, thing, I guess to call it, but the start of another. So that's always an interesting concept. I, I would be cautious. Your current trajectory. Sure, I would be cautious about the stock market analogy, uh, and I think this is just something fun to bring up. Uh, I think I always think it's really interesting, but. I recently read in a piece that if you, I'm going to obliterate, uh, I think the point will come across, but the specifics, if you took away the top um, 10 or, or the top 20 days in the stock market where, you know, the, those best gains in the last 20 years, you would have actually lost money. So like, I, I think a stock market, stock market is not a great uh, analogy for what you're trying to say, but why? The I don't. Point. I don't understand why that. Well, because you're saying that it's all gradual, but in, 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 that data kind of shows that it's not, and that if you missed out on those big days, you'd actually lose money. If you only went to the gradual days where it went up, you know, zero point one percent, you would actually lose money in the grand scheme of things. The point being, I, I don't know. I know what you're trying I, to say. I hate. I, I, hate I think. Be, I think it's. No, no, no. I, 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 I like. I know. I think that that's a good point. Um, maybe maybe step back from the idea that like okay the stock market always goes up for me what's cool about it um is there are so many different like and obviously you know people 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 say like oh the stock market can only provide you a limited scope of human psychology but it's also a very very clear and distinct one um that's sort of like on a 2d scale that is really easy to understand um and this idea of like ups and downs right the ups and downs that you know 
really are our life. Our lives are made up of ups and downs, um, you know, the crests of waves and the trenches. Um, and for me, it's, it's, it's really cool to be able to see whether it's evolution and learning from your mistakes, bouncing back from your downs, you know, and getting higher, analyzing, um, analyzing the stock market to understand more about human psychology or just wave charts, to be honest, um, is something, uh, um, that I just think cool, whether it's, whether it's like realizing that there's an upward trajectory or not, I think it's cool because it definitely gives you an understanding of how humans accept things and how emotion plays a role. Um, yeah. Into, into I, I think Dalio's big on this, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I watched a short video of his on the economic machine and how he talks about, sure, the market, you know, market comes in cycles, but at the end of the day, that's because people are cyclical. So yeah, interesting idea for sure. I think, um, those are kind of all the details I have. Uh, I kind of want to step back and kind of look at the the book. I think this last section was very practical in the sense that he provided concrete examples in the workplace. Um, so it's kind of hard to you know bring insight into that uh, compared to the other sections, which were more abstract. But I did find it somewhat useful, probably the least useful uh, out of the four, just because we obviously in high school, we don't have those uh, implications for a work environment. I think it'd be interesting, though, if we went around and kind of talked, what are your biggest takeaways from, you know, this 500 plus page book? And if there's one idea you were to take away, what would it be? Rowan, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, and I'll also add in like, I, or maybe maybe this is another round of going around, but like one critique that we have. Um, I think that for me, the biggest takeaway is uh, this idea of radical transparency. I know that um, I think for most of my life, I haven't been transparent and I'm just very like sort of closed off and hidden. Um, and uh, I think radical transparency gives you like this extremely solid foundation off which you can build off, right? Um, it's sort of like rooting your argument in fact, right? Um, by being radical transparent, you know, nothing's fake, nothing's, uh, nothing's overinflated, nothing's underinflated. It's actually what it is. Um, and I think that that gives you sort of a building block to build everything off of. Um, and I think that, I think that's definitely the biggest takeaway for me. Um, and I think it's, it's something that I want to, um, be able to implement my life in, implement into my life, not only because it's efficient, but also because it's, it's, it's the best way to live. It's rooted in realness. Okay. And so, yeah, I think we I'll can go in and yeah, Andrew, you want to go for your, your kind of your biggest takeaway? Yeah. So like we talked about a little bit, the book is repetitive and a lot of the points get to like the same broader principle but in terms of the ideas that were repeated and that were um that i took away well first you want to live a structured life by writing down principles and following them without fail so you can optimize your work and relationships and also a big point is to appreciate and don't take struggle for granted so you can reflect on your mistakes and revise or add additional principles to not repeat the same mistakes and also seeking absolute truth when making decisions and looking at your own ideas. So you want to be radically open-minded so you consider the best ideas and get other people's feedback on your own performance and ways to improve. Then um, when problems occur, you want to examine the problem from the root cause and see how you can prevent it from happening again. And with that, focus on other people's reasoning rather than making conclusions. And then the last thing I think is really important is to make sure other people are aware of your principles. So you can both understand each other and where you're coming from to work well together. So Andrew, if you're taking one, if you're taking one, if I'm telling you, you can only take one idea from this book and I'm going to remove the rest from your memory, which one are you taking? 
I would take radical open-mindedness because it kind of ties in with a lot of the other ideas that, or maybe absolute truth. I would choose absolute truth because you want to be absolutely truthful with yourself and with others so you can have the best ideas and go forward with those ideas. Yeah, and I think radical transparency and radi- radical truthfulness, uh, which is actually the first point he hits on, right? Like being radically truthful with life and being a hyper-realist, I think he brings that as the first like life principle out of all of them is because it's so important. Our kind of hit on that. Uh, but there's some connection between radical transparency and radical truthfulness. Specifically, like radical uh, transparency think... is expressing the truths that you find in reality. I, I think there's also, but I, I, I wouldn't be that like connecting of them. I think radical transparency is being 100% clear with your beliefs. Um, I think radical truthfulness and like this search for the real truth um, is is sort of like a very, I don't, I'm going to botch whatever it is, but like this like, I think we learned about like Greek. I, I should be asking a question, not stating something. But um, this whole idea of like, are there are there real truths in, for, in the world? I think this idea of radical truthfulness and searching for these truths um, is what being radical, uh, radically truthful is. Ra- being radically transparent is about only about your truths. I, I okay. So I think that's an important point you're making, and that may be your biggest takeaway. But to me, radical transparency kind of reminds me of being truthful with others or as truthful as about possible. your truth. And that has to do with being radically true. No. So, so I think there's some connection, but there, you may be taking differences. Okay, yeah, but you're taking. Maybe and it goes. A part. It goes down to this idea that we were talking about two podcasts ago, um, about uh, um, about like sort of like sometimes the truth isn't the best, uh, isn't the best answer in terms of your productivity, in terms of your life outlook, and if you don't know what the truth is and what it isn't, why take the truth? That sort of idea. So, uh, and that's kind of where I'm going to kind of come in and bring up my one big idea. So, firstly, I don't want to bash you, Rowan, but I, I think to me, radical transparency, and this is obviously a personal opinion, to me, radically transparent, being radically transparent, which really talked about this in the last podcast, so I don't want to just repeat what we said, but to me, you can't apply it in a setting where everyone is not radically transparent, or at least a setting where others don't know you're being radically transparent. And so because of that, I kind of want to use radical open-mindedness the most. And, and that's something I found extremely useful to me because uh, I think relative to Rowan, I found myself to be less open-minded and, and relative to a lot of people, but more radically transparent. And so the value add in this book was really radical open-mindedness because that can be applied to every single situation independent of others. That's the big thing that I'm talking about is that this idea of radical open-mindedness, which you know, the clarity to that idea hasn't been super uh, clear to me. I think the clear, you know, the phrasing is off. But um, to me, radical uh, open-mindedness has not been super obvious. And so he really makes it obvious through, you know, these different principles. Um, and so to me, the, the reason it's the biggest idea is because you can apply it to every aspect of your life and other people don't have to uh, kind of know about it or have to uh, abide to it strictly. In the interest of being radically transparent, it's very ironic that you're making a point about open-mindedness being the biggest takeaway from this book and dismissing my point about being transparent uh, and not being open-minded while saying that. So I would actually say that radical open-mindedness, so, so, so not agreeing with someone does not have to do with radical open-mindedness. I've heard your point. I let you, you know, I, I kind of, and, and I think it's a valid point, but I have some problems with it. And so that's kind of where, you know, I get to make the decision ultimately, right, about what my viewpoint. So a radical mind is more about listening than than completely adopting someone else's viewpoints. 
Well, what I would say about radical open-mindedness versus radical transparency is that focusing on the reasoning, we can all, I think, agree that there could be some cons of radical transparency, like Ara said, in a setting where everyone's not on board. But I think as long as you're being efficient and thoughtful with how you're being open-minded, being open-minded can't hurt you because you're just considering others' ideas to try to get the best idea. Whereas being radically transparent in this kind of culture where what you say is on record forever, I don't. I think there are some cons that you have to consider. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with that. The last point I wanted to make um, was um, I think that when you know we talk about like in terms of like recommending this book and final thoughts, like um, I think there is the editing on this book, to be honest, wasn't great. Um, and I think that's the reason that there's a lot of repetition and a lot of thoughts that are just brought up twice. I think it was more just like, I'm going to just sit down and write this book and then publish it. Um, and obviously I, I think that he addresses this in like, this should not be read like cover to cover as we did. Um, so for, for, for me, I, I would say my biggest takeaway, my last question for him would, I wish this book was more of a, um, sort of like a ph- philosophy, sort of like life principles outside the workplace and outside of being, um, you know, as efficient as possible, sort of like a, um, the why behind my life, the why I want to be the best, um, investor or why I want to, you know, create this huge hedge fund and, um, what sort of that purpose is in the grand scheme of things. Um, that would be my, my big question for him. Um, because frankly, from my opinion, um, being radically open, uh, transparent, I wouldn't be able to find purpose, I think, in running a huge hedge fund. Um, I don't think that there's enough, and obviously this is a very personal opinion of mine, but I would challenge him on it because um, I think, you know, there's being being a really, really smart person who really understands people and how to be efficient and productive. There's so many ways in your life that you could be helping the world. And I know he's a philanthropist and all that type of thing, um, all that type of stuff, but there's so many other ways that you could be helping the world. Why is being creating the best hedge fund um, the best way to do that? Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree, not too much with the last part. I think, yeah, I think it would be very interesting to talk to him about his decision with continuing the hedge fund for so long and not immediately transition to something that may be more uh, value-intensive for the world. Impactful, sure. But I think the big idea is this. He derives a bunch of principles from the idea of being excellent. And this is just an example. Like He strives for excellence, whether that be in his life, with the relationships, or especially at work. But he never explains it. And that's, I think, what Rowan's getting at. is like, why be excellent? Where is that fundamental truth of the world coming from? And is there an explanation? Because maybe it's, you know, which I highly, highly doubt, but maybe it's just a truth, like one plus one equals two, that you just kind of have to accept. Well, he doesn't quite explain excellence, but he does say that evolution is the most important thing. I think he just enjoys constantly evolving and growing as a person, making new principles and utilizing them, which leads towards excellence. And I think with that thought, we're kind of going to end the episode um, or, or the podcast. This this was a bit of a tough uh, read towards the end for all of us. I think it got a little bit repetitive um, and there weren't many new ideas produced. But overall, I think this book was extremely valuable. Um, the first half of it was uh, something I'll take away for a very, very long time. Many of the points he discusses. Um, and yeah. All right.